Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Pursuit from Bourbon to Brand. However you have found us, we're glad you're here as we get behind the scenes with the Pursuit Spirits brand. I'm your host, Brian Bikey, and joining me, welcome back from your excursions, gentlemen, we have Kenny and Ryan. How are you all doing? Howdy. We did do some excursions. You're supposed to say ciao. 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 Did you bring me back the uh, Janduyas that I asked about? The Giandioto? I was not in the hazelnut region. I did have tons of Nutella, though. <laughs> Every morning with a crepe, fresh crepe. I cannot. I crepe uh, croissant. I had croissants. You were so close. You were almost, almost there. <laughs> it was an eight-hour train ride from where I was. I wasn't that close. What I remember about Italy is that they always had like fresh deli meat. Every morning at the hotels oh, yeah. as your as your breakfast, like there was like capicola and prosciutto and uh, salami and all this other kind of stuff. Bologna, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's a big, more to it's a big it's bologna more, country. <laughs> it's mortadella. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's it's basically bologna with a bunch of spices in it, or uh, right. one of those little chunks of stuff. It's, in it. it's like fruit and stuff, right? Sometimes, yeah, maybe that's what it is. Yeah, Weird. I usually don't eat many carbs, but I had like. A ton of pasta and pizza. It was like great. <laughs> I just, but you walk a ton there, so it's like you need it for the energy. So, I uh, all I did was eat and drink. I felt like for for ten days, it was it was kind of pretty awesome. And I drank my weight in Aperol spirits, probably. <laughs> you glad to be back in the land of bourbon a little bit? Yeah, not much bourbon there. That was the downfall, and so. But I got to refresh, reset my palate, refresh my mind. You know, it was, it was good. Got to spend time with the family, so it was good. And then you get back and you're in email hell and uh, <laughs> just playing catch up. But it's I'm glad to be back at it. Did Don't you forget uh, scrubbing toilets, too. That's what we were doing oh, yeah. today. Yep. Just picked up Master Janitor Role at uh, <laughs> our uh, new facility. So I was scrubbing... 20 year old pee from the toilet. That <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> we think it is. It could be older. But, uh, <laughs> we call that the PP Van Winkle, is what we call that one. <laughs> oh, man. That's pretty good. <laughs> Did you by chance go to an, any Italian cafes while you were there? Uh, yes, I did. And I'll have to admit, I had some great espressos and cappuccinos over there, but I went to Quills this morning. And my gosh, is it not better than anything I had in Italy? And I, and I told, I told Angel that, and she was like, "I don't believe you." And I was like, "I swear, this is the best cappuccino. It's better than the Italian ones." So. Did you see that? The reason I asked because I know you're a big cappuccino drinker. Did you order any cappuccinos after 11 a.m.? I think that's still like not a thing that you do there. Oh yeah, they're all. Well, no wonder they were bad. Well, yeah, that's. Ordering. I remember uh, I saw a, a picture of a girl holding up a, a sign that said "Quit drinking cappuccinos after 11 a.m." Uh, in uh, tr- what's the the square tree Trevi Trevi Fountain? Trevi um, Fountain, yeah, yeah. That was my wife. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're right, Brian. I guess that's a thing where they're not supposed to be. You're not Why supposed is to drink it after 11. Well, because it keeps you up, or I think it's because of the um, all of the 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 milk or like the heaviness of a, a cappuccino that early like it's it, it's supposed to be uh, I don't know just a, it's it's usually considered a morning drink and so I think just generally people find it strange uh, to to order something so milk heavy uh, yeah I guess you're right I guess we did only order espressos after and you like probably after. asked for the milk alternative didn't you and you didn't get turned away 
Yeah, they only had soy, so I just did straight milk. And and uh, they only had this meat with the fruit inside of it. It's like, no, you <laughs> no. could just get espresso with the meat on the side. Kenny's head's imploding. So I was he's say, like, this gosh, is the worst. All this coffee talk. Get out of here. That's fine. Well, let's let's get out of here. Let's 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 pull up. Let's pull up. Yeah, I, Kenny had a good trip in New Mexico, spreading the gospel. That's true. And Ryan was a, Ryan went more of an exotic trip. I went on a little bit more of a domestic trip, I guess you could say. But it was it's still exotic. Well, I, I would wouldn't call what I did exotic, but I did go explore part of the United States I'd never been to before, which was always interesting to be able to do. Uh, I got to see a lot of desert, a whole lot of desert, but. Yeah, I took a flight from Louisville to Denver. We picked up a car, spent a, a few hours in Vail, kind of looked around. By the way, Vail is a really cool place. I don't think I could afford it during the wintertime, but uh, after oh, Vail- Oh, awesome in the summer. Oh, oh, I mean, it was great. It was a like really cool little area and stuff like that. And and I was just going like, this place must be a madhouse when there's snow on the ground. And then after there, we drove to Moab, Utah and went to Arches National Park. We did some canyoneering, some hiking and stuff like that. So it was kind of cool to, again, see something that took millions and millions of years to form. Kind of like, not like our bourbon, but I don't know. It was, it was, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was interesting to definitely see all the different arches and stuff. And then after that, we took, we actually, we actually drove, we were driving to Albuquerque just to kind of actually do some work work. But on the way there, we went and stopped at Four Corners and actually got to stand in, you know, all four states at one time and do that sort of thing. Oh, uh, I will I will say that if you're going to do it, I wouldn't highly recommend if, like, that's your destination. But if it's on the way, yes, go check it out. But it was definitely uh, nothing that you're going to be like, oh, this was an amazing experience. But needless to say, uh, Google Maps, like, every 10 minutes was like, welcome to Arizona. Welcome to Colorado. Welcome to New Mexico. And you're like, what the hell's going on? And then, uh, yeah, we drove to Albuquerque and got to go. Uh, actually, the second day that we were there, we went to a bunch of Breaking Bad sites and breaking because I love love Breaking Bad. Got a bucket of chicken from uh, Los Pollos Hermanos. Well, actually, it's called a Twisters, is what they are. It's kind of like a local fast food chain, so they do hamburgers and burritos. But yeah, it's oh. the filming site where Los Polios Hermanos was. We got to see Walter White's house. We went to like 10 stops or whatever. Uh, but then that evening, we presented, or should I say, I Lauren was there as well, but I got to present to the Albuquerque Whiskey Society. So again, shout out to Dan and Liz for their hospitality, allowing us to come in. And thank you to everybody that came out. There was there was a full house. It was packed. They sold it out. There's 50 seats. Uh, it's a tick, It was a ticket event. People actually paid to come see it, which was awesome. But I mean, I gave them... A full hour and a half of nonstop talking, and my wife was like, "We got to trim some of that out." So <laughs> there was definitely, definitely some fluff that was kind of built in there, but not really fluff, but just almost too much information. But as we've been going through here, and you've been listening on behind the pursuit, we're full of information and too much story, and so we've got to figure out how to take that down and trim it out just a little. But then after that, we spent a day in Santa Fe, which I need to go back and spend more time at Santa Fe. It's it's a really cool city, good happening scene with food and drink, and I want to go spend some more time there. I'm glad you explained the what Twisters was. I was going through our QuickBooks, and I was like, <laughs> what is Twisters in New Mexico? <laughs> but you were with Lauren, so Not I thought that it'd be Twisters. okay. So. <laughs> Funny thing is that we go there, we'd already eaten for the day, 
And it's like, well, you go there, you don't want to be a jerk and just go in and take pictures and leave. So we just had to order something off the menu. And I think we ordered like a, I don't know, I think it was like a dragon fruit lemonade or something like that. And It's like going into the liquor store looking for Blanton's. (laughs) You're like, well, I guess I'll buy a bag of chips while I'm here. You know, you got to support the store. That's funny. Either way, it's good to have you all back scrubbing toilets. So I know I missed you. The public needs us cleaning toilets. We do. <laughs> well, while we're here tonight, what I want to dig into, it's something that uh, we all kind of discussed off air a month or so back, which is what exactly the sell-through process looks like, that the whole chain, what that timeline looks like. So let's dive into this and kind of uh, kind of shed some light on that for uh, for the listeners. Sure. I'll, I'll jump in real quick. So I think we've said it on this show and also on Bourbon Pursuit maybe 10 times over is that... Anything that you want to do, you need to plan at least a year in advance because that's how long it takes to actually go and officially launch a product. And I don't know if we want to get into the the launching the product thing, but we can kind of skip forward to the point where you feel like you have a product, you've done the development, you've gotten TTB approval, so on and so forth. You've already had releases before, you know what you're going to do and just do it again. Yeah. uh, You think it's like rinse and repeat. And I think that's probably what we have to still figure out in in regards of like that rinse and repeat cycle of how you get there. Because, you know, not only is it just going through TTB and getting your label approved at that point. So that's actually step one. That's, that's the easy part because they take seven business days, they turn it around, they're like, here, here you go. Or they say, Hey, you need to change this. So that's actually the, the easiest part. But then after there, that's kind of where the compounding actions start beginning. And that really kinds all begin with your, your distributors. Because when you have a new label that's been approved and you want to sell a bottle with that label in that particular state, you typically have to get it registered with the state. So this is another level of of kind of government intervention to say that, okay, I'm going to create a new label. Does this label fit into a brand family? Like to say we were to come out with uh, United.next or whatever it is, a different United expression or something like that. Well, that's technically a new brand family. So there's a certain process for that. Now, if you were going to create a whole new brand and we were going to call it you know, Old Pursuit or something like that, well, that's a new brand family. So you, there's a whole different registration process for that. And you've got to do that for every single state that you're registered in. Some states are easier than others. There's some that have a, a shared portal, I guess you could say, is the best way to do it, where it makes it easier to just go through the process of making sure those labels are registered in every single state. Uh, Then from there, it actually starts working with your distributors. I mean, you've got to make sure that they're on board because as much as we want to go and create new products and put stuff out there in the market, they're going to be the ones that decide, is the market ready for it? Do they want to carry it? Do they want to take their salespeople out and and go and try try to push this product? So that typically entails getting some samples together, sending them out to distributors, having them try it. And and by the way, it's not all the time this has to happen. I would say that if you're if you're one of the big boys out there and you know you're you're batting a thousand on literally every release that you've done, they'll pretty much take you without second guessing it, whether it's an LTO or a limited time offering or just something brand new and it's an extension because you have a proof of track record. When you're a smaller or even a mid-sized brand, and you're still trying to build that track record. And and, th- and by the way, we talk about track record. It's like if you have existing product in the market and it's not selling or it's not pulling through or they're not seeing reorders or anything like that, well, they're going to be very hesitant about wanting to sit there and take on yet another product. Like they don't want to bring on another dud that's going to sit and rot in their warehouse or anything like that. At the same exact time, you know, 
you create this and establish this relationship with a distributor, they want to be seen as a as a good partner, and they don't want to sit there and go out and try to have to sell really crappy whiskey at the same exact time either. Like they want to they want to feel really invigorated and excited about what they're doing too. So after you get your distributor on board, well, then you actually have to go and train. I mean, that's that's the next big thing. And that's one thing I think that Ryan and I were still learning is that as much as we go through and we want to figure out how to create new products and develop new products, like there is a three to six month lag that comes in of just like, okay, well, how do we get in front of every single person in the sales force for every single distributor in every single state that we're in so we can go and train them on this new product? And by the way, it's like, it, Ryan, you can probably explain this. It's like when you go and do these trainings, like they're called GSMs, they're general sales meetings. These are typically, they typically happen uh, once a month or once every quarter, depending on your distributor. And they will invite anywhere between four to 10 brands, usually on a Friday. And they will go, It's and a lot of it is death by PowerPoint. You've got to sit there in a chair and you've got to have somebody come in. They give the 15-minute speech pitch and then the next person comes in and it's just a revolving door of doing that and it's got to be tough to be a distributor honestly that like now that i've like we've been doing this like it's got to be tough as a salesperson because we lean on them a lot to be our boots on the ground and i know we've said it before it's like we've got four core SKUs that we care about but shit like they've got 400 they have to know about and it's it's got to be tough and you've got to be able to stand out in front of them and that's one of the things that we're we're trying to you know, figure out and learn is like, is like, how do we leapfrog that a little bit? Like, how do we get to the point where it's, you know, we, we, like they become a, a cog in the wheel where they're just taking orders because the, because the retail stores want it because the, the consumers want it because to be able to sit there and go and train every, I mean, when you talk about train, I mean, y'all, we're talking like thousand, maybe thousands of people that we have to go and do this to every single time we launch a new product. And, it is, uh, it's exponentially difficult to make sure that we get in front of them in a timely way to make sure that they are familiar with the product and they can go out and they can go and do a new sales motion to go to all the liquor stores that are within our distributed areas, or not all of them, or at least the key accounts that we're either already distributed in or ones that want to carry our product and be able to pitch it. And that is a, it is a, it is a long, arduous process. And I know I've talked a lot, so I'll uh, that's that's a that's a very good skeleton, but I think we could dive into some of those right there. I think one disadvantage we had as a brand is we really launched. You know, we had the single barrel stuff that was kind of a craft project. Like it wasn't like a true business. This United launch is really our first entry really into the marketplace, and it was during COVID. And you know, you ha- you had these GSMs, and you they were all Zooms. Most people didn't care, you know, distributors, like Kenny said, they have thousands, hundreds of brands, hundreds of SKUs, remember, most of these general sales meetings are on a Friday, they don't, they'd rather be with their kids, their families, they don't want to hear another pitch about another brand. And I think that's where, especially on virtual, and that's what we did, you know, during those COVID years. And now we're finally able to get in person, and it's made such a huge difference to go be able to go in person and talk to these distributors and present your product and brand. Cause even distributors we've dealt with for a couple of years, you know, that have it, you go and meet them in person. They're like, like, so, uh, your whiskey's from MGP, huh? And you're like, no, it's not, 
where you're not sitting on that. Well, maybe I was, I don't know. You know, it's, it's tough. I'm, you, and then you get it once you go to go there. But uh, yeah, it's really, you're really kind of, I think people don't understand this. Like you come up with a product, you're ready to take it to market. And then you're at the mercy of the distributor and even the distributor. And then you're at the mercy at the store of like when it actually hits the shelves. So some people like in our smaller or not, sorry, not our smaller markets, but some states, they will, our distributors like very good at taking the product, getting the sales staff trained, getting it out into the market and the retail stores. So others, you know, they have a big portfolio where they take it in. You might not be on focus for a few months. They'll have a time in the period of the year that they can focus on you and it kind of waits till then. And so it's really hard to like strategize your product releases on all these different cadences of different states, dis- different distributors, and you're trying to get in line with them to all kind of be on sync, but sometimes that doesn't always work. And then you're trying to pull through product that you might've released a year, 18 months ago, but you're already promoting the new stuff. And so it becomes tricky and a uh, challenge for to kind of push old stuff and new stuff at the same time. So why, why don't you explain to everybody what on focus means? Because that was something that we learned recently as well. Yeah, sure. So, you know, distributors, like we said, they have a ton of brands and there's a few brands. It's like the 80-20 rule. They have 20, 20% of the products they carry produce 80% of their revenue. And that's the ones they're going to focus on because they're just taking orders. And rightfully so. This is paychecks for them. This is what pays the bills. Um, I think that's your your Sazerac, your Anheuser-Busch, your yeah, Coors, think, like that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, and it's fascinating. Like if you read about the whole Bud Light thing is like, you know, where people consumers have pulled back so much on Bud Light that distributors that carry Bud Light are really struggling because they counted on that revenue, those commissions, those because a lot of distributors are 100% commission sales reps. And so they count on, you know, just stores ordering these products to, to create their, you know, their paychecks. Yeah, because those are typically just check boxes. Like, yes, of course, everybody wants to order Bud Light. And now they're not doing it. And that's a that's a big shift in, in things. Yeah, sure. And so when you have a product like ours, you know, a distributor is trying to get behind you, really trying to build your brand. They'll put you on focus where they will get in the front of the reps at the weekly sales meeting and say, hey, we have this new product. Here's the selling points. Here's some incentive to go out and put it out in shelves. You can package it in with, not all do this, but you can package it in with the, these other things and whatnot to get it on the market. Here's the case deals we're going to do. Or Pursuit's going to offer this many tastings to get the product on the shelves. And so basically it puts you in front of the sales team so they're just not like in automatic mode where they're just in that order taking phase. Because that's easy for them to do, which it, I don't blame them because it, that's what pays the bills and we're paying toilet paper for them. So that's what on focus is, is like we're for a period of time, usually about 30 to 60 days, your, your brand is part of the conversation when they go into stores and preaching about your product. And so you have to be very, that's your sales team out there going out and you have to be, you know, communicate exactly what your vision is and what your product is. And it was hard for us to do that with Zoom meetings and COVID and all this stuff. So now we're going back, I think I said this earlier, and doing these in person. And so that just adds time to like getting the product on the shelf and then doing tastings and getting it pulled through on the 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 in the market. Yeah. And another thing there too is 
even though we were doing some stuff over Zoom, I felt like we were very naive at the beginning because, I mean, we didn't know about sales and distribution. I mean, that was like bar none, that was our weakest sales or our weakest point as our business because we we put stuff out there and we just thought, oh, okay, it's out in the ether, everything's fine, so on and so forth. But this is something that, you know, thankfully we've had somebody that we brought in as a consultant to help us try to figure out sales and distribution and understand distributor lingo and know exactly what it is to get on focus, what are incentives that you need to put in place, what case deals do you have to offer to be able to make sure that this sales team is incentivized to actually go out and help push and move your product. Because that's one of those things, is, as Ryan said, is like you have some larger distributors out there and yeah, sure, they'll send you a check for, gosh, like $75,000 on a PO and they'll let it rot in the warehouse. Like that is pennies to them. And if you don't do something to make sure that you either you're the squeaky wheel that gets the grease or whether you're throwing up more money to say like, hey, well, what can we do to kind of start moving these cases? Like it's it's a constant thing. And, and it's one of those things too, is like as we started going down here, now Ryan and I, you know, we started splitting up different states of who we work with. And we try to have at least, you know, two to three week conversations, you know, every two to three weeks with our with our distributors, just to check in with them, just to kind of have, you got to create that relationship and you got to build that trust. And that's something that we didn't do early on. And we are still trying to uh, figure that out as we continue to go here. And, and to be fair, I mean, Brian, this is, it's tough. I mean, between having our day jobs as well as doing this and bourbon pursuit and being a two man team that has to run the whole operation. It's really tough to run sales and operations. Like that's, that's honestly one of the things that I am really looking forward to is that when we have enough money to make our first hire, like that is going to be the hire to make. I think, you know, we've had this discussion and, you know, Penelope has proven with their latest acquisition, you know, that I think we, there was a discussion on a community roundtable once like who's more important, the master distiller or the salesman. And it's the salesman. I mean, Penelope, that's what they were brilliant at, you know, and they put all the hustle and effort and money and going out and working with distributors, working the market, getting product on shelves, getting it off the shelves. And that's, that's what it takes. It's not, you can have the best product, but if you don't have, this is a very, um, relational business, you know, that, um, it's old school. Cause they're, it's very old school because these, when you go to stores and you know, that the the things that the Bud Lights, the well maybe not anymore, but Coors Lights and Miller Lights and uh, all these Jim Beams and all those worlds, those keep the door, those those pay the bills, and then like stuff like ours is where they make good margins, but it's not exactly like it's not a huge money maker for them, and so it's you have to be, it's a very relational transaction that. You have to like be in front of them, create friendships, create relationships to where they're behind you. They're kind of held there to help build you up with you. They're your partner. Um, it's not just like uh, take this and sell it. You know, they, they don't need to, um, you know, to be fair, they don't need to do it. It's a favor to us to put it on their shelves, really. And so we have to create that trust and that relationship um, to, to for them to be partners with us. So I'm curious kind of what this, the process chain or, or timeline, like if you, if you, if it's mainly just 
a streamlined thing, if it's a you keep more money in your pocket thing, or if it actually changes some some of the the, the timelines or processes there uh, for brands like, for example, Nashville Barrel Company, where they're you know they're they're in the market as well, and they're doing they're doing group, group picks. You see them on on retailer shelves as well, but it seems like they've got a lot of focus on more. B2C sales and it seems to be doing really well for them. And they've they've got that out of the gift shop and and they can and then ship and all that stuff. Well, you know, what does that look like in terms of of shifting uh, the sell-through process and those examples? Yeah, I mean, obviously being in that it cuts that lag time down and you're training your own staff. You're very much in control of the process. You're in, you know, I'm not sure the Tennessee law, but in the Kentucky law. You know, you're not having to go through distribution, so you're making a little bit more margin. But at the same time, you are having that physical location. You're having those expenses. You're having a staff, all that overhead expenses to to do that. And so, you know, I think you have to have a combination of both. And I think Drew Colesvina Willett told me this. He's like, I love seeing our reports on the weekends at what we do at the distillery. But he's like, I love even more the reports from the 50 states that we're in were we're not having to do anything and the sales are coming in. And so that's the point I think you want to get at. Yes, you need that physical location to kind of give people an experience, get you behind your brand. Nashville does a great job of that, doing that intimate barrel pig experience. But two, you got to invest in to where the, this model eventually starts kind of running its itself. And you can't do that with just a physical one location. And I think the people in Nashville Barrel come and say that too. Like they focus so much on their on-premise or not on-prem, but their gift shop that they kind of lose touch with the, you know, the, the distribution model and that, that it, it's hard to f- focus on both, I guess, but you need both to be successful in this kind of space. Yeah. We've definitely noticed that there's a, there's a huge need for that. And I'm sure that we'll be able to talk about that much more to, at a later date of some other things we got cooking. But that's one of those things that as we, and that, that's where, as we had mentioned before, that's where the numbers start making sense. Because as a spreadsheet person, when you start looking at, well, what are other competitors or I don't know, friendlies or what are other bourbon brands around here? What are they doing out of the gift shop? And what's that, what's that opportunity cost look like? And that's where it really starts making sense. And so we, you know, we want to make sure that we start capitalizing on that because there's a huge tourism boom. Uh, you know, bourbon's not going anywhere, especially when it comes to Louisville. So we want to make sure that we continually start venturing out that way. But as Ryan said, we can't lose the idea of, of what we've done by having our presence in additional states. And also, as well as, you know, this whole ambassador program has really helped spearheading and kicking that and and actually helping move that even further towards the goal line every single day, because that's really what's proving to be able to get product off the shelf. And, you know, back into the timeline, Brian, as, as what you'd mentioned at the top of this, the, the show here, is that, yes, even though you get something into the hands of the distributor and you go and you train them, well, there's still another hurdle to go through, and that's that they have to go and they have to sell it to the retail shop. And that typically involves them taking sample bottles that can get billed back to us. So they've got to try it. They got to bring it on and they have to relay the story. 
if you remember the game of telephone, right? So you whisper in somebody's ear and then they whisper in somebody's ear and then they whisper in somebody's ear and you go around a circle and you see if the message is still the same when it comes across. I mean, that's essentially what we're playing. It's like, we've got to train the person that trains the person that goes and talks to the the retail store. Then the retail store then has to go and hand sell our bottle to a consumer. And would you know, at the by the very end, they talk to the consumer. I bet you they're like, "Yeah, it's probably just Indiana stuff, right?" So that's that's the that's the tricky part about this game is that you're continually having to get in front of everybody. So whether it's distributor, and once you and gosh, let's just keep going here. So once you start talking to distributors, and you're like, "Oh, I'll come down there and do a GSM in person, but also do a ride with," which means I will hop in a car or I will get my my car behind one of your sales reps and we'll go visit, I don't know, four or five, six accounts or whatever it is in a day. And you'll go and you'll shake hands with the particular store owner and you'll either say, thank you for carrying the product. Here's some more product. Let me tell you about it, so on and so forth. Or you got to go and sell them on their product. And it is a it is a long, arduous process to just put one case, one case deal into a store. Um, and so once you have that into the store, like I said, you're still another month out from once it hits a distributor's warehouse. And then from there, it sits in a retail location. And then that's when you start putting your, you know, you're crossing your fingers, hoping that people are knowing about it. They're searching for it. They want to go find it. They, they hear about it online. They, they hear about some influencers talking about it, or they had their, you know, their friend over that brought a bottle and they want to go find one now. Like that's where it all comes in of just like, how do you build this organic uh, sort of motion where people want to go find it? And that's really where everything that we've built is kind of been in that, that sort of scenario with the podcast with Bourbon Pursuit. It's like, yeah, we talk about stuff like we want people to go and, and hunt and go find these bottles. Um, but, you know, when you listen to a podcast, that is you're, you're a one percenter of bourbon. You are not the majority of people out there. And so that's really where we've seen the benefit of the ambassador program really start to shine because they will be the ones that sit there and they'll book a tasting at, uh, you know, your, your local liquor store and they will be there. And as people come in, they they'll do anywhere between 10 to 70 samples on any random given Thursday through Sunday evening. And hopefully they sell one or even up to 30 bottles, just depending on how much foot traffic is there. And that is that is what we call just straight old school sales mentality, try before you buy. But it it doesn't get any more like grassroots level than that. And that is typically what we found has been the the best way to to help build this brand. And I think that's what pretty much all our distributors told us is like it's we've said it before, liquid to lips. People have to try it before they buy it. And you got to give product away. You've got to pay people to do this. And that's just part of the part of the pain processes game of just making sure that you can get product off the shelf. And that's just part of the process. Even like what Kenny talked about, you go do these GSMs, you ride with it, go to the store, they bring on a case, you're excited. And then there's a chance they can order it. And then it sits in the back of the warehouse. They don't think about it, <laughs> putting it out because it's just one case. They're going to make, you know, a couple hundred bucks, you know, that's not life changing. And so, or you can talk about an experience that you had when you go in, they'll be like, Ooh, your product is $65. Why would I sell that when I've got Eagle rare back here and Henry McKenna 10 at, at a lower right. price point? <laughs> yeah. That's always a fun one. <laughs> yeah. It's just this long process. And that like, 
Kenny said, the ambassador program gives that these stores an incentive to bring it on, put it on, put it on display, get it in front of the consumers. And it's just, yeah, it's a, we were naive. It's, we thought, you know, we grew a podcast digitally and a, you know, social media following it's scalable, you know, very quickly. Whereas a retail on it's, it's not, it's a, a very old school method, but uh, yeah. So if we're looking for timelines, you know, it could take anywhere from at the earliest, probably 90 days to probably realistically six months before your bottle, before it gets bottled to get onto an actual shelf and get sold there. So even from there, we are sitting on bottles of seven CC, some of batch of United bourbon and rye on shelves. And we're recording this in June of 2023. And those were bottled in July of 2022. So just kind of goes to show you that there's, there is a long tail. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to talk about. Uh, And, and, you know, Ryan had mentioned something earlier uh, in regards to that point too, which is, you know, there's, there's the sell through line and and the process. And, and then once it gets to the stores, uh, a piece that that you can't really predict, but I know that you all as listeners can hear, you know, when we announced four CD, so the newest batch of the Oak Collection bourbon, a lot of people were really excited. We talked about it revisiting back to, you know, the core United recipe and and then finished. And a lot of people were excited by that. And they're like, well, so that's going to be in my market. And we'd have to say, well, not necessarily, you know, if, if your state still hasn't sold through the 11 CC, they're still, they still have that skew, but it's not moved on to what we're now talking about. And in some cases, you know, we used to, as bourbon enthusiasts or collectors, you know, we'd go into a store and say, oh my gosh, they have this label product still, or it's, it's the old script or something like that. And as a collector, you know, sometimes those instances could be interesting, but the back end of that is whatever brand that belonged to, you know, in that case, there's, you know, like we're talking about, you know, an issue with those products moving through to prevent them from getting new products on the shelf. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's what makes it challenging for a startup is because you're needing, it's been a year since we bottled, you know, anything and we need cash in and, you know, we, it wasn't, we can't help that some distributors decided to not put it on the shelf for eight months, but I understand that they don't want to take on new stuff till the old stuff, but you need cash in to keep the business going. So that's, it's, it's, there's definitely a cash flow challenge too, that you have to figure out in this space that that's adds another wrinkle in the, the whole, <laughs> there's a lot of wrinkles. Uh, in this i need some like retinol cream or something (laughs) causes a lot of wrinkles that's what i'm trying to go with that's the thing like you'd be like oh i can't believe i I ran into like you said if even like from the big boys you're like oh i found a parker's heavy char you know well the distributor might have got it didn't put it out yet but then they put it out then the store got it but then forgot to put it out because it's only they got a one case three bottle case of it and then they're like oh yeah we need to put this out (laughs) and then there it is you know that's, I, that's I remember just the I was, way it works. I remember what I was going to talk about now, and it, and I also wanted to say that some of this is actually out of our hands when it comes to just the consumer demand and the consumer market. When we look at where the the current trend is on buying habits, it, it's currently trending down right now for bourbon, and that's because we're coming out of post pandemic when people were really getting to it. People were buying left and right and buying like crazy, and now there's a kind of a surplus out there. I mean, it's it's truly getting to that point. And I know people are going, oh, this is great. I'm going to have 10 and 12-year-old bourbon again. I mean, 
don't don't get ahead of yourselves with it. But I, I feel that you know when we start looking at this, like that goes back into the sales cycle and the sales funnel of you know is if the buying habits of people are are trained are trending and they're trending differently because they're either worried about the economy, they're buying cheaper bourbons, so they're buying uh, budget bourbons and not necessarily splurging on stuff. Well, then that means we have to adapt to that too. And it doesn't mean that we're going to, we can't, we literally can't lower prices on stuff like that's because we're already razor thin in the kind of way we are already. But you know, we have to start looking at that and, and start figuring out, okay, well, where do we spend our marketing dollars? Is it going to be more towards tasting and ambassadors? Are we going to put stuff towards the promotional items that you do for whiskey awards? Is it going to be for social media ads? Like, those are the things that we've got to figure out of, like, who's who's going to be the buyers and where we're going to make the most impact. And and that's a continually evolving thing is like, you've just got to sit there and react to the market and, and see exactly how are people reacting to it and what are they doing? What are they buying? What are they not buying? And who knows, maybe that'll eventually play into product development at some point too. And to piggyback on that, just things beyond your control, it's like people think about higher interest rates and they think about credit cards or home mortgages or auto loans, but it also, you know, these distributors and stores, you know, would used to buy, you, you would buy bulk inventory and get better deals, you know, because you would buy bulk and because interest rates are so low. Well, interest rates are high now. So stores and distributors don't want to necessarily take on those deals because it's no longer a deal because the interest rates are at seven, eight, 10%. And so they're, buying less their buying habits has changed because of interest rates they're 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 no longer it's no longer cost advantageous to buy a lot of cases um because of those interest rates and so that throws a whole nother wrinkle in your plans too so all right so just one more before we start finishing up here is that even though you go through you send your ambassadors out you get sell through you get stuff off the shelf well even at that point it doesn't mean that the store is going to reorder so you've got to go through and you've got to either say like, you've got to be on top of your distributors because that's that's one thing that we've learned that even though we're a small brand, yes, the one case that we sold through at a store isn't going to make the biggest difference. And so a store will most likely forget that they sold through it. And since we are a little bit of a nobody, well, when a, you know, when rep XYZ goes into that store, well, he's going to be looking for the ones that need to be reordered the fact that he's going to probably look over our spot on the shelf i'm not going to say it's going to be uncommon like that's that's <laughs> going to happen and so we have got to be able to sit there and, and like that's again where the ambassadors and this is why this is why ambassadors are great but this is also why you see every single brand has salespeople in every major market because that's their job. That's what they do. They go through because if a rep misses a spot where they're like, hey, you're out of this particular product, well, they're going to be on top of it and they're going to make sure that they have to go that and do that order. And I think, you know, we can talk about the frustrations of, of what that is because that should that should truly be their job. Like they should be taking care of it. But those things get overlooked and that does happen. And well, and it, to be fair, like, and I didn't understand this till spending a full day with a distributor 
they have so many brands to keep track of and and whatnot. It, it's literally it, it's difficult for them. I, I I I totally can see how it happens. You know, with especially a brand like us. So just want to throw that in there. So yeah. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But on the flip side, you got places like Ohio in a control state where all of that is basically central data and they know exactly what the in-store inventory is like and it knows that if the inventory drops below say like two bottles then they automatically just order another case for the store like that's amazing well guys thanks for your time tonight thanks for going through uh that process for us and uh and another great episode uh, as always you guys if you all have uh interactions if you guys want to 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 comment on any of these topics, podcast at pursuitspirits.com. That's also where you can email us to let us know if you have other topics you want to hear in future episodes here on Behind the Pursuit. And again, be sure on whatever your streaming platform is of choice, subscribe, like, tell a friend about this. You know, let them get a little bit behind the scenes here with Behind the Pursuit with us. Guys, thanks again for tuning in to another episode. Hope you enjoyed. And until next time, we'll see you all later. Toodles. Cheers. Oh my gosh, Kenny with the outro. Trying. <laughs>